You know, I was thinking during our readings this morning, normally what we have as we go through the lectionary is a, is a kind of consistent flow between the Old Testament, the Psalm, the Epistle, and the, um, and the Gospel. And as, we've, as we have um, been in this series, Gentle and Lowly, we have kind of broken that up because we've been reading passages that have to do with what I'll be preaching on. Um, and it, it seems to me that, that it, it is particularly obvious today uh, th that there seemed to be a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament today. We were, we were reading lament in the Old Testament and the Psalm, and we were reading just brilliant identity statements in First Peter and the Gospel, which we've been talking about. Beginning this week and for the next couple of weeks in our gentle and lowly series, we're going to focus on the Old Testament. And, and I want us to know that, that the New Testament isn't an alternative way to approach God, nor do we see a different or nicer God than in the Old, as some imagine. There's not a disconnection between the Testaments. Rather, the Old Testament flows right into the new. The New Testament, in fact, is the perfect complement, the perfect fulfillment of what we have in the Old Testament. And when we see Jesus sandals on the ground in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're seeing the putting on a flesh of what we've already heard about in the Old Testament. In the prophets of the Old Testament, God speaks to us about what his heart is. In the New Testament with Jesus Christ, we see those words about God's divine heart putting on flesh and walking around on this planet. John Calvin often talked about how in the Old Testament we see shadow, but in the New Testament we see substance. And we see that in and through the person of Jesus Christ and his gentle and lowly heart for sinners and sufferers. In this fallen world, suffering, grief, affliction are all guaranteed. Everyone has or will face these or is, candidly, facing them. This is a reality that's no different from those who are followers of Jesus than it is for those who are not. Suffering was a major theme in the life of Jesus. Everything pointing to the end of his life when he went through the most excruciating period of suffering a human could endure. And in that, he is revealing God's heart for sinners and sufferers. I've always been drawn to C.S. Lewis's perspective on suffering and pain. He, he tasted pain in ways only some of us can relate to. He lost his mother at an er early age. He suffered the complete emotional alienation from his father 
suffered from a, a chronic and serious respiratory illness as a teenager, fought and was wounded in World War I, and finally had to bury his beloved wife just four years after they were wed. Lewis wrote about his heartache in his lament, The Problem of Pain. In this work, he penned probably one of his most famous sentences. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, if we're attuned to it, we can become most keenly aware of God's character in our suffering. It's when our self-sufficiency is peeled away that we are able to see how weak we really are. It's in that moment of weakness then that, as God tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in our suffering that God offers us his power most intimately. We will suffer, but we can, by faith, learn to face it with perspective and power and hope. It's in affliction and suffering that the eyes of our hearts can be enlightened to most clearly see and experience God's very heart for us. This morning, we're going to spend a, a bit of time in an Old Testament book where we don't typically spend much, a book in which God clearly reveals his heart for grieving, confused, afflicted, and suffering people, the book of Lamentations. If you want to turn to it in your Bible, it's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. So... Find Psalms and then just flip over a little ways and you'll be there. The title Lamentations comes from the word lament. To lament, of course, is to express or process grief or sadness or anger or confusion, which I know no one here has ever experienced. So pay attention because you will. <laughs> I know we all have. Life has never been since the fall in Genesis 3, nor will it ever be this side of eternity, happy, clappy, nor up and to the right all the time. And that implicit assumption, that implicit cultural assumption is probably one of the most damaging illusions of our time. The scriptures, however, are rooted in reality. That's why there's an entire book of the Bible and many of the Psalms dedicated to lament. Because our inevitable suffering can cause us naturally to question God, to probe his character, to test his promises, or even to accuse and rail against him. And nowhere in the Bible, by the way, does it discourage or condemn that at all. I have actually in my life called God some very dirty names. But 
to lament well is a healthy part of a life of faith and a vitally important faith-building ingredient in our lives. Biblical lament, despite its questioning and complaint, always eventually leans into God's character and his promises. Psalm 13, which we read today, is a perfect example of that. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Those are important words, steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The book of Lamentations is the people of God, Israel, lamenting reflecting on a horrific and tragic event in their life together. The, the Babylonian captivity as we know it now, 70 years in which God uses Babylon as his agent of discipline for Israel's sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and a big part of the population is taken captive and carried off to Babylon. The five chapters of Lamentations are actually five stanzas in a long poem of lament where God's people are grieving and giving voice to their confusion over what's taking place. God had promised them a land and all his richness and fruitfulness, and yet there they were, captive, their nation looted and destroyed. The book of Lamentations contains no word from God, no resolution, no easy answers. It's simply five chapters of a poem of outcry. Sometimes in the Bible, chapter and verse numbers can kind of get in the way of how the flow of thought and, and understanding exactly the flow that was in the original writer's mind and intention. But in Lamentations, the chapter numbers and verse numbers actually help a lot. Of Lamentations, five chapters, chapters one and two and four and five are 22 verses each. Chapter three in the middle is three times that number, 66 verses long. This is a very ornately structured poem. Verse 33 of chapter 3 is the exact middle chapter of the book. It's the exact middle verse of the book in the middle chapter. And it's the pinnacle, the main point of the book. Hebrew poets were intensely careful about how they put these poems together, and they loved to do this kind of thing. It, there's a fascinating way that it is done in the Psalter, all of 150 Psalms, which I'm not going to get into, but it, it will blow your mind when you hear it. 
And since verse 33 of Lamentations 3 is the high point, we should take note. We should take note of it. It's what the writer wants us to see most when we get there. I want to reread verses 22 through 33 and point out a few things we might glean from the lament of God's people suffering, that we might learn about the heart of God from God's people suffering in Babylon. Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 22, the writer says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may he yet hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And here's the middle point of lamentations. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So here's the first thing that I see in this passage about suffering. While suffering is certain, for God's own, suffering is not final. While suffering is certain, for God's own, suffering is not final. Verse 31 says, the Lord will not cast off forever. This is, of course, speaking here of the children of Israel, and the Lord had cast them off. He'd warned them, and he'd warned them, and he'd warned them, and then he judged them. And verse 32 bears a sobering reality that I cannot easily explain. There are times when the Lord will cause grief. For sure, there are times when some of our suffering is self-inflicted. Sometimes it's a result of our sinfulness, our rebellion, or our ignorance. We bring it in a way on ourselves. Sometimes our suffering is collateral damage. It's brought on by the sinfulness or foolishness of others. We see that all around us in our culture and even much of the church. It can be the collateral damage of the sinfulness or foolishness of others or candidly it's just the natural result of living in a world that's broken and bent, a fallen world. But sometimes, and this is an incredibly hard truth to wrestle through, sometimes Sometimes it's actually from the hand of God. It is tough to sing whatever my God ordains is right when we don't understand where suffering has come from. I can't explain this. I can't give a clean, pat answer. I can't tie a satisfying little bow around why we sometimes suffer. But here's what I know. Sometimes... 
and God's sovereignty, it comes from his hand. While suffering is certain and none of us will escape it, there is a bigger truth embedded here. For God's own, it is not final. To God's own, it isn't final. It's not the whole of our story and it's not the end of our story. I want to remind us of Hebrews 12 too where it says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Suffering was part of his story, but it was not the end. The end of the story was joy. And when you put your faith in Jesus, when you become one of God's own, that's the end of your story too. Here or in eternity. I'd also like to remind us of some verses we probably all know and maybe even roll our eyes at occasionally and have heard often. And I think the reason we hear them often is because we need to hear them often. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When he calls us to himself, and if we love him and if we've put our faith in him, he promises that all things will work together for our good, even when in our suffering we may not see it. And 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. And my 63rd birthday is sometime soon. And <laughs> besides lemon meringue pie, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> because my body is wasting away. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, our suffering, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are, are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When it seems like suffering is going on and on and on and there's no end to it, God reminds us that it's transitory and that the good it's doing in us is preparing us for something, an eternal weight of glory. He's telling us that even in our suffering, even in our hardship, even in affliction, which from the perspective of heaven is temporary, even then there's important work being done. In his sovereignty, he's weaving those things together for your good and for his glory. He's crafting something in you that's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison or imagination. So while suffering is certain, for God's own, suffering is not final. Which brings us to the second thing that we can learn the high point of the book. God does not afflict from his heart. 
God does not afflict from his heart. This is the central point of the book of Lamentations, something the writer wants every lamenting child of God to know then and now. God doesn't afflict from his heart. He may afflict, he may bring grief, but he does not do this from his heart. One of the reasons I deeply appreciate the the book, Gentle and Lowly, is that it has helped me to see the Puritans and their teaching from a different angle. I have always subscribed to the definition of a Puritan being a person with a nagging suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time and they must be stopped. But these are people who loved Jesus. And Puritan theologians Thomas Goodwin and Jonathan Edwards wrote about an idea, the terminology of which I had not heard before. They wrote about God's strange work versus his natural work. Not strange in the sense of weird, but strange in the sense of it being kind of alien to him, not the thing that's most natural for him. Dane Ortland said this in the book, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain that indeed is why he's doing it. But something recoils within him in sending that affliction the pain itself does not reflect his heart. I think of a parent who allows some hard things to happen in the life of their child, not because they get some kind of perverse pleasure from it, but they love what it's going to produce in them. Lauren and I, were, I was chatting with her about some details so that I got them right and I was thinking about the whole thing wrong. Um, but one thing that, that, that we did agree on is our eldest son, who when he was in middle school, I think it was seventh grade, had a capstone project in his language arts class, which they'd been working on for several weeks. And we got to a teacher's conference and the teacher told us that he had not turned in one assignment during all of these weeks, and he was failing the, the class. Now, he, he did okay. I mean, he, he's a responsible adult who loves Jesus and has a great family, good job, good college, whole thing. But at this time, we're thinking, well, he's never gonna get into college at this rate. We were aghast, and we thought something surely must be happening in his soul. But Lauren, she got angry, and she marched him to his locker and made him open his locker, which was a rat's nest. He had done every single one of the projects, every bit of homework he had done. But he didn't like the teacher, so he didn't turn him in. He took poison and expected his teacher to die. <laughs> That's a time when you allow your child to suffer the consequences of their actions. He did, and he learned. We 
We do that because we know it's going to strengthen something good in them. And so they, we reluctantly allow it to happen knowing it's for a much, much greater good. This is what the Puritans called the strange work of God. It's like the strange work of parenting. To discipline and afflict. But the thing that's most natural to him is not to afflict, not to cause suffering, not to discipline. It's to show mercy and grace and love. These are things that flow most naturally out of him. And I'm sorry if you did not experience this in your family of origin. That is heartbreaking. But that is not reflective of God's heart. and what flows most naturally out of him. This is why we see the description of God as he was revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as being slow, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. This is why the Old Testament often talks about the people of God provoking him to anger, a word that we see in our confession every week. We never, ever have to provoke God to love and mercy and grace because these are his character, what flows naturally out of his heart. The most natural work of God, his heart for his people, is described in Jeremiah 32, 41, also about the exile. I will rejoice I will rejoice, this is God speaking, I will rejoice in doing good to them. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That's the heart of God. It's what flows out of his heart most naturally, even for these rebellious people. It's not anger, it's not judgment, it's not afflicting affliction it's not grieving it's love and mercy it's to restore it's to do them good this is what he does with all his heart and with all his soul this is his natural work there may be times when he brings affliction there may be times when he brings grief but he does not ever do it from his His most natural work is mercy and grace toward us, which flows right into a third thing I, I see from the people of God as they lament their suffering. God's mercies always follow. God's mercies always follow. Let's go back to verses 21 through 23. As the writer is in the midst of wrestling with all of his emotion and confusion, he remembers something this I call to mind and therefore I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the words steadfast love and mercies that we see here come from one Hebrew word. You've heard it a lot lately. Anybody guess what it is? Hesed. Steadfast love. It's the, 
reason is it's, it's the kind of community we would like to build at Redeemer. Used about 250 times in the Old Testament, hesed is a comprehensive word that encompasses never-ending grace, mercy, goodness, forgiveness, truth, compassion, and faithfulness, steadfast love. A love that never ceases, that never ends. What we're told over and over again is that his steadfast love, his mercies never end. They never stop. They never run out. We can never replete, deplete his supply of mercy and grace. I don't know about you, but I have done some absolutely stupid and sinful things in my life. And never once, never once has one drop of his grace and mercy been depleted or diminished his mercies are full and overflowing and they never run out they are new every morning fresh every day in our lack of faith in our wandering in our suffering he remains steadfast thanks be to God so how do we I feel like I have to have a an application of some kind, so here goes. Actually, you know, I, I don't ever say we, we apply this to our lives. Rather, we apply our life to this truth. So how do we apply our life to this truth taught in Lamentations? And just one thing, because it's all I could come up with, and I have no easy answers. When we can't see his hand, we can trust his heart. When we can't see his hand, we can trust his heart. But we can't trust his heart unless we know him and what his heart is for us. And that in his most natural work, his heart is always overflowing with love and mercy kindness for us so when we're suffering when we go through hardship when we experience affliction and when we can't see his hand at work we can by faith trust his heart revealed most concretely in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen